0: This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Well, I want you to think for a second about some of the closest, uh, most intimate relationships that you have. Maybe it's a a lifelong friend, maybe it's a a spouse, maybe uh, it's a sibling. Siblings either seem to be like your closest person or your least closest person, one of the two extremes. But think about the ways that you spend time with that person. Typically, you know, you're probably having some incredibly in-depth conversations, sharing some of the most uh, intimate thoughts and emotions with them, things that you probably wouldn't share with anybody else. But not just that, I think there's times that we simply just want to be with each other. You know, you're, you're with each other, not saying a word to each other, just enjoying each other's presence for example, there's times where I'll um, I'll walk into Pastor Rob's office and I'll just stare out his window. He's sitting there working away, doing whatever, and uh, I'll stare out the window for five minutes and uh, won't say a word. And uh, I just need to be with someone else. Like I haven't seen a human being for like ten minutes, and so I come in every five minutes. Very inefficient on sermon writing days on Friday, but sometimes that's what we do, isn't it? But those relationships they they don't happen overnight, do they? They're not instantaneous. That intimacy, that trust that we have with that person, it takes time to develop, investing in that relationship. And the same is true of our relationship with God, isn't it? It it, it takes time. I think we all desire greater intimacy with God. And I think many of us struggle to find it at times. I think it's because we're not investing in our relationship with God. We're, in a sense, trying to microwave a relationship with God that was meant to be a slow simmer over time. And what God is calling to each and every one of us, he's calling us to come. And he's calling us to abide in his presence and to spend time with him in his word and spend time with him in prayer. And you know, as simple as that sounds, I think when it comes to the spiritual discipline of prayer, I think it's one of the most misunderstood practices there is, and also one that's easy to overcomplicate. And so this morning, as we continue learning how to live out the way of Jesus by listening to the words of Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to see Jesus teach us how to pray in one of the most well-known prayers in all of Scripture, the Lord's Prayer but not before first ensuring we understand why we pray. And just as he did last week with giving, he's gonna show us how we can do the right thing for the wrong reason. He's gonna show us the why behind the what. What we're gonna see this morning in our sermon, When You Pray, is this, our big idea, one that I think corrects our misunderstanding of prayer, one that corrects our motivation for prayer, and one that is also just a very simple definition of prayer is this. It's that prayer is an intimate conversation with God, right? Prayer is an intimate conversation with God. That's, that's what it is. And I think it's, it's so much simpler than we've made it out to be. And Jesus, he's going to start here with the why behind prayer, confronting our self-centered motivation for prayer and, and, and pointing us and giving us the proper purpose for prayer, and only then, after he has shown us the why, is he going to show us the how and teach us how to pray. And so, first thing, Jesus, he's going to front the first of two self centered motivations for prayer. The first one he confronts is to be seen by others when we pray. He says here in verse 5, he says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. And truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Jesus, right out of the gate, just like he did last week, he assumes that prayer is a regular rhythm in the, the lives of those who faithfully follow him. And for the Jewish people, uh, prayer was a regular rhythm. They prayed at three times each day, a custom that went back hundreds of years, going back at least to the days of, of Daniel. Uh, if you remember last fall when we went through the book of Daniel, we saw in Daniel 6 how, how Daniel prayed three times every day. And if we go back further to Psalm 119, we see King David, he, he talks about how he prayed seven times a day. And that practice of, of prayer being a regular rhythm continued into Jesus' day. As the Jewish people, they prayed uh, before they went to bed, which was actually the beginning of their day. They prayed when they woke up, and then they prayed again in, in the middle of the day. We see this in Acts 3, where the apostles, uh, Peter and John, it says that they went to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, which would have been 3 p.m. And this idea of setting aside set times throughout the day uh, to be with God in prayer, it continues by many to this day in a spiritual practice that we refer to as the daily office. The daily office, for those of you who don't know, it's this idea of, of setting aside specific times throughout the day. Uh, many people will set aside two or three times. Uh, monks in monasteries often will have six or seven times throughout the day. And, and when that time hits, wherever they are, they stop what they're doing. They begin to center their heart, focusing it on God. They sit in silence with God. And then there's a a passage of Scripture, typically, that is is meditated on in the daily practice. And let's be careful here. The, The idea of this is not about creating a mechanical ritual of doing. No, it's about establishing a regular rhythm of being. It's not about doing for God. It's about being with God. It's about seeking His presence throughout the day. But some had taken this spiritual practice and perverted it. And Jesus, he's confronting these hypocrites, as he calls them. Remember from last week, that Greek word means a theatrical actor wearing a mask, wearing a costume. And what they were doing is they were treating this midday prayer, this mid-afternoon prayer, as a theatrical performance, essentially. They were turning this private spiritual practice of prayer into a public spectacle for others to see. They planned their entire day around this. They, they planned their day so that they would just so happen be at the front of the synagogue when the bell struck 3 o'clock. Or they would just so happen be at this busy street corner so that everybody could see them when they prayed. It was just coincidence. It's kind of like uh, in college. Say, for example, there was this girl you like, and we'll say her name was Jill hypothetical, and let's say, uh, you know, you spend that first semester trying to figure out her class schedule of when she has class and what building she has class, and it just so happens that you pass in front of Lago Mocino Hall, which is nowhere near the electrical engineering building, and you just so happen to pass in front of she's coming out of class, you're like, fancy meeting you here. What a coincidence. And then you hightail it back for your class, which is like a half mile away on the other side of campus. That works a whole lot easier if you're at a smaller school, by the way. Oh man, that's what these guys were doing. The whole thing was staged. Not to seek God, but to be seen by others. Not not seeking his presence, but seeking their approval, their applause. Right? They wanted others to see how holy they were, how righteous and spiritual they were. And Jesus says of them, of these hypocrites, they've received their reward. They got what they were after. They, they were seen. They were applauded. They were admired. And what Jesus goes on to say in verse six is, but when you, when my followers, when my disciples, when you pray, don't do that. Don't be like that. Don't, don't pray to be seen by others. Don't pray to impress others because that misses the entire point of prayer. And so Jesus, he says in verse 6, he, he provides the proper motivation for prayer, and he says, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The setting that Jesus describes here of prayer, it is far more personal and far more private, isn't it? That's because prayer is an intimate conversation with God. And the practical instruction that he gives here, I think it's far more profound than we realize. The literal translation, it it could be go into your closet or your pantry and not just shut the door but lock the door. And and what's interesting is in in first century rural Palestinian homes, uh, typically the only door that would have had a lock on it uh, would be the storage shed or or the cellar uh, where they would keep feed for the animals, where they would keep tools. And so rather than going to the most public of places to pray, they were to go to the most private. Rather than going to the most holy and sanctified places in the temple, they went to the most ordinary place. To be with God. To get away. But isn't that what we do when a friend calls that you haven't talked to for a long time on the phone? Jill, for example, every time her mom calls, you can tell it's her mom because she immediately hightails it out of the living room where the three of us boys are wrestling or doing something that causes a lot of noise. And uh, she'll go into the bedroom and she'll shut the door. If it's an important phone call, she'll lock the door too. And, uh, And she just wants to talk to her mom. She just wants to be with her mom. And man, that's all God desires of us. He desires our undivided, uninterrupted attention and affection. He wants not just a part of you. He wants all of you to come and to meet with him. And so what Jesus is saying here is this. He's saying, don't pray to impress others, but to spend time with God. Does that make sense? Don't, don't pray to impress others. Pray just to, just to spend time with God, to spend time with your Father. And so, so get away from the crowd. Right? There's no need for an audience because there's no need, it's not a performance. It's just an intimate conversation between you and God. Get away from the crowd and then shut out the distractions, whatever those might be. Eliminate the noise so that you can be focused entirely on God. And think about it, what is the single most distracting thing that each and every one of us probably has in our pocket or purse right now at this very moment? Our phone. Our phone. And so I got to think, if, if Jesus were giving us the paraphrase for 2021, what he'd say is, uh, find a quiet place, get off by yourself, and shut off your phone, shut off your computer, shut off your iPad, take off your Apple Watch, and whatever other electronic device we have bothering us in the moment, shut off all those distractions, and just be with me. All of you with me. And think about it. Think about what a privilege that is that we can come and that we can meet with God at any time, at any place in prayer. That's what he's inviting us to. And so that's the first thing that he confronts. The second thing Jesus confronts, the second self-centered motivation for prayer, is that we like to be heard, don't we? We like to be heard in our prayer. He says in verse 7, and when you pray, he says, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. The Gentiles here, he's referring to uh, the pagan people who prayed to and worshiped uh, other gods, other than the God of Israel. And these gods that they prayed to, they were prone to get tired. They were prone to get distracted. They would take naps in the middle of the day. I mean, if you're a god, what else do you have to do? Everybody else is worshiping you. You just take a nap. At least these did. And so the first thing you had to do if you were going to pray to a sleepy, distracted God is you got to wake them up, right? you got to get their attention. And, and, and so it's kind of like a, a three-year-old getting his mama's attention, right? Three-year-old comes up, mom, mama, mama, mommy, mom, mama, like pulling on the shirt, whatever you got to do to get mom's attention. And finally, what does mom do? She puts down whatever she was working on, and she's like, what? It's kind of what these gods were like to them. They would heap up empty phrases to their gods. Literally, uh, they were babbling. They were uh, vain repetition. Right? It means they were just saying the same thing over and over and over, hoping that they gained the attention of the distracted gods to listen to their prayers, even if eventually they like, What? Just tell me already. We see this in Acts 19, the pagans in in Ephesus, they were chanting over and over again, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They would chant this thing for over two hours to draw the attentions of their sleepy, distracted gods, hoping this this goddess would listen to their prayers. And and Jesus, he he corrects this motivation by providing the proper motivation, saying in verse eight, he says, don't be like them. Don't be like them because the God you pray to isn't like them. He, he says, for your father, the God to whom you pray to, he knows what you need before you ask him. Not only does God hear our prayers, he's, he's listening to you intently. He, he wants to listen to you. Not only does he hear your prayers He's listening to your prayers. He knows you intimately as you pray. He already knows what you need. He knows what you need before you even ask him. It's like if you've got a coffee shop that you go to frequently, and as soon as the barista sees you pull in the the parking lot, they're already making your drink, and when you walk up to the coffee bar, they're handing you your venti quad shot latte with almond milk right then. I only had three shots this morning. It's good. But it's nice to be known like that, isn't it? It it, it feels loving and included when people know what you need without you even having to say it. And that's who God is. He, He says in Isaiah 65, before they call, before my people call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. And so what Jesus is saying to us here is this, is that don't pray hoping God hears what you want, but confident God already knows what you need. Don't pray, hoping God hears what you want, but confident that he already knows exactly what you need. And I think that frees us to pray more honestly, to pray more vulnerably and openly, knowing that God already knows. And So you don't have to worry about getting God's attention. God's got a lot of kids, doesn't he, right? And yet we each and every one of us have a direct line to him. We don't have to worry about getting his attention. We don't have to worry about impressing him with our fancy words, right? You don't have to pray in the King James. You don't need to pray thighs and thous. You can pray in our simple language. In fact, Jesus invites us to pray to our father like a child, so you don't have to worry about getting his attention. You don't have to worry about the words you're using because he is already waiting. He's waiting for you to come to him. He's already listening. He hears your every cry, and he already is seeing your needs, not just of your needs, but of all his children. And only after clarifying why it is we pray does Jesus then teach us how to pray. And he does here in verse 9-13. through He begins saying, Pray then like this. And how about this? Can we all read this together? And some of you I know are you're going to just naturally blurt it out in the King James. That's okay. Um, That's just what I have in my head too. So there's going to be some thighs and thous in this. It's okay. You just don't have to do it. So let's pray this with me. You ready? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I love how short and simple that prayer is, yet how theologically spectacular the whole thing is. And it's got all the right parts in all the right places. And did you notice who comes first? Who comes first in this prayer? God does, right? It's adoration before asking. Jesus, he begins this reminder that that God's glory comes before our desires, don't they? And he addresses God as our Father in heaven. Those might be four of the most profound words in Scripture, We have the privilege of addressing God, the creator and the sustainer of the universe, a God who, who does not sleep, who does not get distracted. We have the privilege of addressing him as Father, just as Jesus did when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before he was crucified, when he cried out, Abba, Father. Abba is the Aramaic word that Jesus used when he prayed to his Father a name that carries both affection and authority. It, it was a name that uh, Jewish boys and girls used as, a, as children to, to call their father, but they used it throughout their life. And, and so it carries that, that aspect of affection, like calling out as a young child, Papa, Daddy. But it's not just that. There's also this, this level of authority, of respect and reverence, like sir, father. And they come together here. And this name, it expresses our humble obedience to God out of our love for God. Right? Abba, it's a name that both declares who God is and who we are in relation to God. Because those who faithfully follow the way of Jesus Those who have received him, who believe in his name, scripture says he gave the right to become children of God, born of God. We are his chosen, adopted children. And so God is our father because we are his children, making us family. We are brothers and sisters united together in Christ. And so we pray this prayer together. We pray to our father and we pray to our father in heaven. And he doesn't mean heaven as in like an address in the cosmos, as one specific place, but as in above all, right? Our intimate, eminent, faithful Father who knows your needs, who hears your prayers, is also this infinite, transcendent God of the universe, the sovereign God of the heavens. He is omniscient, right? He is, he is all-knowing. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He is omnipresent. He is over all at all times. That is who chose you. That is who adopted you. That is who loves you. That is who knows you. And that is who is calling you to come and pray to our Father in heaven. And following that reminder of who God is and who we are in relation to God, Jesus goes on to make three declarations of God. And the first one in verse nine, he says, hallowed be your name, holy be your name. This prayer of ascription, it declares that God alone is holy and righteous and pure. Not as a, a reminder for God, God knows who he is, but a reminder for us, for us to remember that when we pray to our God in heaven, we remember his holiness. It's just like what we see in the, the scene of the throne room in heaven in Revelation 4 when the, the, the creatures cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty who was and is and is to come. God knows who he is, but it is a declaration, it is a scripture To God, it is worship to God. Hallowed be your name. The second in verse 10 is your kingdom come. And what he's doing here is declaring this reminder that we we live within God's story of redemption, don't we? We live within the pages here that the story is not yet complete. Complete. See, while the the kingdom of heaven, it it broke through, so to speak, in Christ's first advent in his incarnation when he was born and lived, it didn't fully enter in. Though the full consummation of the kingdom will take place when Christ returns in his second advent. And, And this here is a reminder that we are to live today as citizens of another kingdom, of a yet future kingdom. That was the theme that we saw throughout the book of Daniel last fall, wasn't it? That we are citizens of another kingdom. And we know that God is both sovereign and faithful, don't we? That he has both the power to fulfill every promise that he has made, and that he is faithful to fulfill them in and through Jesus. And he will, upon his return, when he restores all that is broken, when he rights all that is wrong, and when he reigns over this kingdom, your kingdom come. And the third one, in verse 10, is your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And to be honest, this might be the hardest of all of the aspects of the Lord's prayer to pray, isn't it? Because it means praying for God's will to be done for his plan according to his schedule. Even when, and especially when, that's different from yours. Because as God said in Isaiah 55, he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And that means trusting that God's way is better, that it is always better. Tim Keller in his book on prayer, he he says, God will either give us what we ask or... Give us what we would have asked if we knew everything he knew. We know just a slice of the story. God sees all. He knows all. He is over all. And so before we pray for what we desire, we pray for what God desires. We pray for our heart to desire his will. We pray for the courage to accept his plan. We pray for the strength to live out His will for our lives and for the world, even when, and especially when it is different from ours, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And only after declaring God's glory do we pray for our own needs. First we ascribe to God, then we ask of God. And Jesus, he gives us three petitions to ask God, to ask of our Father when we come to him in prayer. And the first is for provision, right? The first is for provision. He says in verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Now there's a couple things here I want you to notice that he doesn't say. Notice he doesn't say our daily funnel cake ice cream Sunday. That to me is like the best thing about Six Flags is that funnel cake ice cream Sunday. The only thing that's better than that is the red velvet funnel cake ice cream Sunday. Can I get an amen? If you've had it, you know what I mean. It's like eight thousand calories that you don't want to share with anybody. He didn't say God grant us this our deep dish daily pizza from Giorgio's, not lose. What? No, he's not calling us to pray for the things that we want. He's calling us to pray right here for the things that we need. But also, here's the other thing I want you to notice. Notice he doesn't say, give me my daily bread, does he? He doesn't say, give me my daily bread. He says, give us our daily bread. We are not just praying for our own needs, are we? We're praying for the needs of others. We're praying for the needs of our neighbor. It is a communal prayer. In a sense, the Lord's prayer is praying out the great commandment, isn't it? Right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Loving the Lord your God by praying out these three declarations of who God is, and loving our neighbor as ourself as we pray for things like our daily bread for yours and yours and yours and yours and yours. There's no asterisk, pray for the daily bread of those who worked hard and deserve their daily bread. Pray for the daily bread of those who you like. No, he just says, give us this day our daily bread. And I think that aspect of this prayer, it, it unites us. There's something unique about praying for someone else, isn't there? It unites us, but it also humbles us. Because it helps us recognize that everything that we have is a gracious gift from our loving Father, amen? Everything that we have. It helps us recognize our under dependence on God for everything that we have, everything that we need. Just as God rained down bread from heaven, he rained down manna from heaven, providing for his people in the barrenness of the wilderness. We pray, give us this day our daily bread. We pray for provision. And number two, we pray for pardon. We pray for pardon. Verse 12 says, forgive us our debts, forgive us our trespasses, forgive us our sins as we also have forgiven our debtors, those who have sinned or trespassed against us. And when we come before a holy and righteous God, when we come before our Father in heaven, holy be your name, when we remember who it is that God is, when we come before him, we recognize who we are and that we are sinners, aren't we? And our sin has separated us from God. Our sin has accrued a debt to God. It's amassed a debt so great that it would be impossible for us to ever repay it on our own. And in fact, the harder you try, the more in debt you go. Kind of feels like some of our credit card bills at times, doesn't it? You're making the monthly payment and the bill gets bigger. That's kind of how it feels when you're trying to earn your own salvation. You're trying to pay off a debt you could never pay. The debt, it can only be paid by death. The death, debt can only be paid by the shedding of blood. And, and so this here it is a reminder of our inability to do this. It is a reminder that Jesus came to do for you what you could never do, that Jesus came and that he lived and that he shed his blood and that he died. He died to pay your debt. He died to forgive your sin. Not because he had to, but because he chose to, because he loves you. A love you have not earned, a love you do not deserve. That's what makes it grace. That's what makes it mercy. There is nothing you did to deserve God's love and forgiveness. And that's not to shame you. That's to encourage us. That is the good news of the gospel. That There's nothing you can do other than to receive and believe. But what Jesus is calling us to do here, he's calling us to respond to that love. He's calling us to respond to that grace and that mercy that God has shown you. He's calling you to respond to the grace you've received, that love you have received by reflecting that love and that grace and that mercy to others, forgiving others of their sins against you just as God has forgiven your sin against him. What Jesus is saying here is that forgiven people forgive people. Forgiven people forgive people. And if we jump ahead, Jesus, he gives us a little added footnote, a little added commentary in verse 14 and 15. He says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I told you when we began this series that the words of Jesus might not sound like what you thought, and the way of Jesus might not look like what you had been taught. But Jesus is pretty clear here, isn't he? I don't think we need to have a better understanding of the Greek. I don't think we need to have a seminary degree to see what Jesus is saying here. He's saying forgiveness is not optional, is he? Forgiveness is not optional. He's saying that when you withhold forgiveness from others, God withholds forgiveness from you. And I don't think we like that, do we? But it means that those who don't forgive are not forgiven. Forgiven. What he's showing us here is that their forgiveness is no more or less undeserved and unmerited than yours, than mine. And so if you don't show mercy to others, why should God show mercy to you? If you have not bathed in that overflowing well of grace and mercy that has washed you of your sin, You'll never be able to forgive others. But if you have received that forgiveness, you will then forgive others. And yet every time we talk about this, as we have throughout this Sermon on the Mount, I feel like we need to put an asterisk at the end of this to clarify something. It's that your forgiveness does not always mean their repentance, does it? Sometimes we forgive people that have not repented of their sin. Sometimes we forgive people that may have acknowledged and apologized, but have not truly repented. They have not felt remorse over their sin. And yet, we are still called to forgive. Our forgiveness is not, there's no condition given here on we only forgive if. Forgiveness does not always mean their repentance. And without their remorse, without their repentance, there can be no Reconciliation, can there? There can be no true restoration. And so let's not take this passage and let's not take the words of Jesus and twist it into something that he's not saying, which many have done, which have led many to return to an abusive environment. We can forgive and continue to establish boundaries. Amen? But we are called to forgive. And I think this permeates the entire Sermon on the Mount, doesn't it? Because what we have seen each and every week is that the way of Jesus is a way of undeserved love and grace and mercy. We pray for provision, we pray for pardon, and the third thing is we pray for protection, right? Protection, verse 13, he says, and lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. Uh, scripture says God will test you, but that he will never tempt you. Temptation, it comes from our sinful hearts. Temptation comes from Satan, who who Peter says is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And and so what he's calling us to do here, we're praying for the strength of the Holy Spirit within us to resist him, to resist sin, and to stand firm in our faith in Jesus Christ. Praying not just for the power to resist the temptation to sin, but the desire to kill the sin that exists in our hearts. But again, this isn't and lead me not into temptation, but lead us not into temptation. It's not just protection individually as a follower of Christ, but corporately as the body of Christ, a prayer for the church, our church, the global church. And at this point, some of you are wondering, where's the rest of the Lord's Prayer? Right, Where's that, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen, right? That's, While that fits the flow of the prayer very much, Uh, that doxology is not in uh, the oldest manuscripts and extant copies that we have. Uh, That doxology was added at some point later in time. And so here's what that means. It means it's not the inspired word of God, but because it fits and because it flows, because it is true and accurate, I just need you to hear, it's fine to add that at the end. Uh, you've not committed any sin by adding that beautiful doxology at the end, but that's why it's not in your Bible, because it wasn't the words of Jesus. But that's what Jesus is saying. And so please, please hear, if we could condense all of this, what Jesus is saying is that prayer is nothing more than an intimate conversation between you and God, between you and your heavenly Father, But at the same time, I want to make sure that we don't hear what Jesus is not saying here. Because I think we've taken this passage and we've made it say things Jesus never intended for it to say. Three things here that I want to show. And again, remember, Jesus, he's confronting the why, not the what. He's confronting our uh, motives, not our methods. And so number one, Jesus is not confronting who we pray with. He's not confronting who we pray with. He's confronting praying to be seen by others. He's not confronting praying with others. Does that make sense? He's not saying, uh, I'm banning corporate prayer, that the only time you should pray is when you go into a closet. No, corporate prayer, praying together, that is a beautiful, unifying act that we see throughout Scripture. We see corporate prayer in the Old Testament. We see corporate prayer, uh, Jesus leading it in the Gospels. We see it in the early church uh, through acts in the epistles. And we do the same today. We pray corporately in worship. We pray with one another. We pray together uh, Wednesday night at Wednesday night worship out in the backyard. We pray together in our small groups. And we pray for one another. I remember we live by this phrase, don't just say you'll pray, but don't just say you'll pray. Stop and pray. And that means, like, if you've got the opportunity to pray for someone, man, you take that opportunity. Don't ever say, I'll pray for you. No, stop and pray for them, whatever you're doing. And if you're texting somebody afterwards, don't say, I'm going to pray for you. No, stop and pray, and then text and say, I prayed for you. I prayed for you. Don't just say, I'll pray. Stop and pray. But don't stop and pray in order to be seen by others, don't find this opportune time in the lobby or the sanctuary to look uber holy and, and, and spiritual. Look at me. I'm laying hands on my brother here. I'm praying for them. Don't pray to be seen by others. Pray to care for and love one another, rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who we bearing one another's burdens, and doing that in prayer. Jesus is not confronting who we pray with. He's not confronting corporate prayer. Number two, he's not confronting when we pray. He's not confronting when we pray. Jesus had no issue with set times of daily prayer. Did you see him say, do not pray at specific times? I, I miss that if he said that. He called out how they coincidentally timed their midday prayer, but he didn't condemn midday prayer. He had no issues with set time of prayer. The disciples prayed at set times uh, even after. We saw that in Acts 3. So did the early church even after into the next generation. Uh, The Didache, a first century church document that kind of spelled out what the church would do together, uh, it continued this spiritual practice of the daily office, praying three times each day. And yet somewhere we got in our head that prayer should be entirely organic and spontaneous, didn't we? As though spontaneous prayer is more spiritual than scheduled prayer. And like, I got that in my head, and I don't know where that came from, but we need to shed that. Because it's not true. It's not what Jesus is saying here. Pastor Rob and I were joking. Pastor Rob said, he's like, it kind of gives new meaning to don't just say, oh, pray, stop and pray, doesn't it? Don't, don't just say, you know, I'm going to pray when I get home from work. Because what happens when you get home from work? You're, you're tired, you're hungry, you eat dinner. And then I'm going to pray before I go to bed. And what happens when you get in bed? You turn on Netflix and you fall asleep three seconds into that next episode. Don't just say you'll pray later. Stop. Whatever you're doing, and pray. It gives that phrase new meaning. Because like anything else, I think what we find is that we pursue what we prioritize, don't we? We pursue what we prioritize. And so if you don't prioritize God, you will not pursue God. If you do not prioritize worship of God, you will not worship God. If you do not prioritize prayer, you will not pursue prayer. It won't just happen. I know we like to think that, but it doesn't, does it? It it did that one time three years ago. And that, it's like that golf shot. You know, you hit that one really good golf shot. That's what gets you back. You had that one really good prayer time three years ago. We just kind of did it. We pursue what we prioritize. And when we don't prioritize God, when we don't prioritize worship, when we don't prioritize prayer, when we don't pursue those things over time, what we begin to feel is that God becomes so silent you can't hear him anymore. That God feels, uh, he becomes so distant, you can't feel him anymore. But God didn't go anywhere. God's omnipresent. God is everywhere. It's you that backed away. You will never experience that intimacy with God that you desire if you never seek God, if you never spend time with God. And so here's a question I want to ask each and every one of you here and at home. Are you prioritizing loving the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind? Are you prioritizing spending time with God in prayer? Notice I didn't say, are you praying? Are you spending time with God in prayer? This is about being with God, not doing for God. Are you prioritizing seeking God in his word and listening to God speak over you? And are you prioritizing worshiping God with his people? Not once a month. Not when you feel like it. Not when you're having a good Sunday and you happen to wake up on time. But making it a regular rhythm in your life. And so I want to encourage you. Let's begin pursuing God together by prioritizing. Prioritizing the weekly rhythm of worship and prioritizing a daily rhythm with God, with God in prayer, with God in his word. And number three, Jesus is not confronting the words we pray. I think this one is just as important. It's easy to read a passage like this, and what we hear is, pray like this. And we feel this need to um, remove any form of formality from our prayers, don't we? We need to remove the formal prayer. And what we then do, we treat things like liturgy. Ooh, bad word, isn't it? We treat things like creeds, old-fashioned. We treat things like reciting prayers as somehow less authentic and less spiritual. And that's not true. That's not what Jesus is saying here. See, some actually translate the the adverb here at the beginning as, as pray thusly. And if you look at the Lord's prayer in the gospel of Luke in chapter 11, he says, when you pray, say these words. And so I think we get caught in this battle. Is this a model for prayer or is this a prayer? Yes. While Jesus uses these words as a model to teach us how to pray, he also offers us these words as a prayer. And here, in a sense, Jesus has has essentially given the church her very first creed to be recited together aloud, our Father in heaven. The early church recited the Lord's Prayer three times a day. They continued that daily office. They continued praying these words of Jesus. And that's not just okay, that is good. It is good to pray written prayers. It is good to pray the Lord's Prayer. It is good to pray through the Psalms, many of which were were David's prayers to God. It is good to pray through a prayer book like, like the Valley of Vision. It is good for us to recite the creeds like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. They offer us these boundaries of orthodoxy to keep us in line. We should draw from the depth of the rich well of prayer that we have been given. Not hide it, not push it aside. And I think that becomes especially true in those moments where you're not sure what to pray. Because we've all had that, haven't we? Father, I, I wanna, I, I just, just like, um, Father, just, um, I think those are the moments we need the words of Jesus, isn't it? We need to pray the prayer he gave us. Those times when you don't have the words to say, in those moments, pray like this. And that's how I want to close our time in God's Word together, is one more time. I want us to pray the Lord's Prayer, but I want us to pray it with a different understanding. I want us to see it in a different light. I want us to see it the way Jesus wants us to see it. I want us to see the theological depth and beauty in these words as we ascribe to God who he is and we ask God to provide for everything that we need. So will you bow your heads with me and will you pray this with me? Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.